You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Okay, so we've been in this conversation about um, Christian values and changing times, and we've been focusing on the image of God and the primary verse that we've been reflecting on, Genesis 1. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. One of the hopes that I hope that you're getting from this series is just how timely so many of the conversations our culture is having tie into the image of God. Are you starting to see it? If you follow the page on Facebook, I've been posting um, additional things I see in real life that connect to themes that we've been talking about in class. Uh, Some of you have been emailing me uh, news stories that you're noticing that tie into themes in the class. So I'm glad that you're kind of starting to think about it and draw some connections into your lives. And so this idea of the image of God is a very ancient, um, going all the way really back to Judaism, uh, traditional Judaism, that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. In other words, they don't have their worth based on what they do or their function, but simply because they bear and possess the image of God, that there is something different about being a human. So we've been kind of more looking at, uh, we did this several weeks ago, we started a conversation about looking at this question from a scientific point of view. And so we were considering the question, are humans animals? Is there any distinction between the animal realm and the human realm? And if you recall, we looked briefly at this um, piece, I think was from the um, National Geographic or Smithsonian or some mainstream website. And the, the, the position of our culture is that humans are nowhere near as special as we like to think. And I'll, this caption is, I think, particularly telling. There's not much difference between gorillas and humans. And this is in contradistinction to the historic Christian position about the differences between animals and humans. And so when we're talking about the main thing, um, I do have a copy. Last time we went over briefly the, the um, doctrinal statement about the, the um, doctrine of man as it pertains to our church. And we talked uh, about the, keeping the main thing the main thing. Do you remember that? And how the main thing is that there is some kind of unbridgeable gap between humans and animals. And what is that gap? It is that humans alone are created in the image of God. Plants are not created in the image of God. Animals are not created in the image of God. Humans alone are created in the image of God. And so we're going to do some additional reflecting today on uh, insights from science. And I interviewed my friend, Dr. Fazal Rana. Um, He's a biochemist. He's also a very devout Christian. He goes over to New Song and um, has a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Ohio. Um, Used to be a research scientist at Procter & Gamble, like doing research on shampoo and deodorant and lotions. Last time we briefly, we went into like the first four minutes of the video, and we just talked about the three views, Christian views of the image of God. We said the historic view is the resemblance view, where the resemblance view is that humans reflect our creator in three ways. We reflect our creator in artistic expression, symbolic thought, 
and our character, things like righteousness or love. And these are distinctive features of what it means to be a human being. So now we're going to listen to some more of Dr. Rana's uh, conversation with me. I'll stop it a few times and we'll um, process it together. Now when we begin to probe the image of God from yeah. a scientific standpoint, um, this is a very important question because our culture tells us that where humans came from is the evolutionary scenario that yeah. you know humans are you know advanced animals that were at the end of mm -hmm. the evolutionary current evolutionary pinnacle mm -hmm. um and we came about through gradual change mm -hmm. over time mm -hmm. and so there we're only a different from the animals in terms of degree we're yeah. just more advanced yes whereas when we probe this question from a christian point of view we are quite different than the animals because we possess something that no other living creature has and that is the image of god mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about the scientific mm -hmm. angle and and how we begin to probe these questions scientifically yeah. and and you know you, you're you're your description of how the scientific community views humanity in relationship to the the, the rest of the world, the, the rest of the, the animal kingdom, is really spot on. That they, they see us as human beings as being just part of this evolutionary web of life, that we're no different than any other creature, that everything about us that we think that makes us unique or special is really just, again, the outworkings of evolution, and it's just a little bit more of the same from with respect to what the, the great apes possess or creatures like Neanderthals would possess. Uh, and, of course, that really undermines the notion that of the image of God, the biblical view of humanity in a, in a very significant way that has all kinds of implications that, you yeah. know, we can spend time cashing out. But, so, there really is a, a, a sharp... Uh, departure between the scientific view of humanity and the biblical view of humanity. Uh, and, you know, you might say, well, how on earth would you ever measure the image of God, right? right. How can you measure that scientifically? You can't put it in a test tube. I don't know what we're doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. And, you know, but what, what I do believe we can do is compare um, attributes or behaviors that we as human beings have with the great apes, with creatures like Neanderthals. And one way we can do that comparison is by the types of technologies that we produce. That, that our, the technologies we produce reflect our, our capabilities, right? And part of the image of God would be technical inventiveness, creativity, capacity for abstract reasoning and, and rational thought. And, and if we have those capacities and other creatures don't, they're going to be manifested in, in the, the, the types of technologies we produce. And those technologies leave a, a fingerprint behind called the archaeological record. So we could study the archaeological record and we could compare human beings with, other, with the Neanderthals. We can see when does or does there, is there a difference you know, when human beings appear on the scene compared to Neanderthals? And if there is, what does that difference look like? Or what kind of technologies do we produce as human beings? And, and what have the great apes accomplished from a technology standpoint? And those are uh, ways in which we could indirectly probe for uh, the idea of the image of God. 
So when we think about that, when we start probing technologies, I'm imagining things like creating tools. I mm -hmm. know that early humans created a lot of tools. They created ways to go fishing and mm -hmm. hunting. Mm -hmm. um, they created jewelry. They mm -hmm. engaged in those beautiful cave paintings in Europe. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're talking it, about? It, yes, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. And, you know, something that's really interesting is... Uh, that even though this idea that we differ in degree, not kind, from other creatures, including the great apes and, and creatures like Neanderthals, even though that view has permeated anthropology for 150 years. The evolutionary view. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what's interesting is there's a growing minority of scientists who would be evolutionary biologists uh, who are arguing that human beings really are exceptional. Uh, in a way that would line up with the notion of the image of God, that we really do differ in kind, not differ in degree. And, and one, one of them is a scientist by the name of Thomas Sudendorf, who's an evolutionary psychologist who's interested in the evolutionary origin of the mind. Another is Ian Tattersall, who is an anthropologist interested in the origin of humanity, the, the point in time when humanity appears on the scene. And, and both of them are... I would argue, or probably, I know Tattersall's an atheist, I'm not sure Sudendorf's worldview, but he is looking at origins from an evolutionary standpoint, yet they both are convinced that we really are different. And what convinces them is, again, the technologies we produce, but in addition to the technologies we produce, it's the, the development of technology in humanity compared to uh, in Sudendorf's case, the great apes, and in, for Tattersall, Neanderthals. And so, in other words, from an evolutionary standpoint, we, it's believed that we have a common ancestor with the great, with the great apes, and, and specifically with chimpanzees, which means we would have shared an ancestor. So the argument would be, okay, there's two, the, two evolutionary lineages. Again, this is from an evolutionary standpoint. This is not the view that I would hold. Um, and that humans are the endpoint and chimps are the endpoint. And Sudendorf says, well, look at what chimpanzees do. They might do some very crude, they might have very crude technology. They can do some interesting things. They make stone tools, believe it or not. They can make tools to extract uh, termites from nests. They, they actually will make spears to hunt with. Uh, so they're doing some amazing things, but that's their technology. So over the span of evolutionary history, that's, the, that's what they've achieved technologically. For humans, we would have the same starting point, but we've put a man on the moon. I see. Right? You know, we, we uh, are building, you know, we've built computer systems. You know, uh, across the board, the technological advances are enormous. That we have these debates that are moral and ethical in nature. You know, we, uh, we think about what is our past, what is our present, what is our future? These are not things that you see the great apes doing. And so Sudendorf's point is something must be fundamentally different about human beings compared to the great apes for us to, to have a technology development that takes that trajectory. Same point that Tattersall makes, interestingly, independently, when he compares humans with Neanderthals. Neanderthals were actually on the planet longer than humans have been on the planet. Wow. And yet their, their technology was crude and, and cumbersome compared to ours, and it remained static the whole time. Humans, when they appear on the scene, would have, would have had technology initially 
more sophisticated than Neanderthals, but is still a primitive technology. And in the short time, again, that we've been on the planet, again, we've gone to the moon, we've built computer systems, we d have ethical debates, we've established civilizations. You know, uh, and so Tattersall's point is, again, there's something different about humans compared to Neanderthals because of that trajectory. And I find that actually to be maybe the most compelling argument. And, and what is the difference? Yeah. Well, it's symbolism. That is, we can represent the world symbolically and manipulate those symbols in our minds. Uh, uh, and we can communicate those symbols with one another through language, through music, through art, even through jewelry use or body ornamentation. And in addition to that, we have something that Sudendorf calls an open-ended generative capacity, which is a mouthful that basically means we can take symbols and we can manipulate them, and we can take concepts and embed one concept within another concept within another concept. But in doing so, we create alternate possibilities, alternate hypotheses. We can project what the future might look like. We can begin to reflect and dissect and take apart the past. Uh, and, and, and those two things are probably why we have developed technology unlike any other creature. Uh, it's that symbolism. But we also have something else that no other creature apparently has, theory of mind, which means I recognize that you have a mind like I have a mind, and I can anticipate what you're thinking and what you're feeling. No other creature can do that. And then we, we have this capacity to begin to, to link our minds together. And so, we, and so we, out of that, we form very complex hierarchical social relationships. And in those relationships and in that mind linking, we start to communicate symbolically and we start to, to collectively think about alternate hypotheses. And when you put that together, that makes us special. Well, in my opinion, that's just, those are just scientific descriptors for the image of God, right? If you take a resemblance view. Yeah. And so right there we have, I think, just by those sheer comparisons, not of what the technologies are specifically, but the, the evolution or the development of those technologies, that's what really highlights the dramatic difference. So even though many of these scientists would not share our worldview, they wouldn't share our foundational assumptions yeah. about the creator, about humans being created in the image of God, they're making an observation based on the data yes. of, look, here's something interesting that makes right. humans very different and seems to be special about them. In fact, they have terms for this like the Great Leap Forward, the socio-anthropological right. Big Bang. I right. mean, they're, they're making an observation based on the data right. that something is different here yeah. about humans. Yeah. That's so interesting. And so when we think about our ability to analyze and think and engage in creative activity, these are what you see as indicators that are consistent with mm -hmm. the scriptural description mm -hmm. of the image of God. Yes. yes. So what's kind of the big idea of what he's arguing right now? Let's just sort of process that. Like, what's the big idea? That non-Christians are, are seeing something and trying to explain it. Okay, what are they seeing? That we're different. We're different. Humans different. are fundamentally different in some ways to animals. Because we would think that, you know, the apes or whatever would be more technologically advanced. 
advanced. They're still in that state. Because they've been around longer, if right. you're from looking at it from an evolutionary point of view. But I just want you to focus on the big idea of what he's suggesting, is he's looking at things and noticing that even evolutionary biologists are noticing that there's differences between humans and the animals. He's saying it's a growing minority of voices. He just talked about two people there. But there, um, he's, there, there's others too, but he just picked those two particular ones. So are you with me? Do you have any questions so far? Is this, so he's trying to probe the question of what is it that's unique? And looking at it from a scriptural point of view is potentially what, how we imitate the image of God through our character, through artistic expression, and through symbolic thought. Those are the three kind of big categories that he's given us. So, and this isn't to say that animals can't communicate. We had that conversation way last September, remember, about animal rights and that they live in relationships and they have some level of communication. But what he's saying is that ours is just so much more sophisticated. There's no animals that do calculus. And we talked one week about how doing mathematics is a project of the mind. It's part of the invisible furniture of the universe. And that is a product of the mind. Language is a product of the mind in some sense. That, that we can share complex ideas and philosophical categories and we don't always do that very well in this day and age because we're so inundated with media but in times past you know uh this was you know we would really engage in in many complicated conversations but this is where our culture is heading and in a few weeks um or maybe later in this series i'm going to probably play a teaching by dr rana about transhumanism which is a concept we talked briefly about in a q a this is this is a belief that's on the rise among young people. And it's, it's the next step in evolutionary, human evolutionary development to try to access the tree of life, if you will, to extend lives and to become kind of taking us to the next level. So if you have younger people in your oikos, these are the kinds of the questions that they are wrestling with because atheism and secularism is hip. It's cool. If you watch TV shows, the best characters on television, the most interesting characters are often atheists. And transhumanism is an emerging view of how we can extend our lives naturally. It's kind of the next step in evolution. Yeah, this is the great objective now of secular science, like people that are atheists that want to live out atheism consistently. And I don't want to ever give the impression in this class that all scientists are atheism, atheists or that even the, the scientific enterprise is atheistic because there are many fine Christians who work in science. We need more Christians to work in science. But those, those scientists who are atheists and want to live out their worldview in a consistent way, transhumanism is a growing part of their worldview to take evolution to the next step. And this is a very influential concept for younger people. And so it's important for us to sort of be aware of it because it's going to start being on the news and you're going to start hearing about it and you're going to think, what in the world is this? This is some crazy time, okay? So, all right, we're going to now talk about Neanderthals. Now, just a quick snapshot of Neanderthals. Neanderthals were s separate species of, think of them as animals. Think of them as like we have the great apes, you know, we have orangutans and baboons and all these great apes, right? 
Neanderthals were a, a, a very sophisticated type of great ape that lived about 150,000 years ago in Europe and um, part of Western Asia. So they were not in Africa, they were not in North America, they were not in East Asia, but sort of from Europe and in like to Israel-ish, Turkey, that area. Okay, and they lived for about 150, 200,000 years. Okay, well, I think I have some pictures, but they were kind of shorter, stockier, then they had thicker bones, they had thicker skulls than, than humans. They had bigger foreheads, yeah, bigger nasal, uh, cavities. They were just, so think of them in the category of different types of animals that God created. Okay? Yeah? At what point was it decided they were distinct separate from humans? Sure. Animal because yeah, it's been a lot of years now, but when I took anthropology and they talked about the evolutionary scale, they were part of humans. Yes. And it moved on up. At what point did it yeah. separate? Very, very thoughtful question. Um, so for a long time um, in the evolutionary scenario, like the traditional text, high school textbook evolutionary scenario was like, you know, you have like something that looks like a chimp down here and it progressively gets bigger, uh, more sophisticated, right? You know what I'm talking about, this great icon. And then at the end are, are modern humans. So Neanderthals were kind of the step right before modern humans. So if we were thinking about this, the, the scientific name is, for us, as Homo sapiens sapiens. We are, everyone in this room and all descendants of Adam and Eve are Homo sapiens sapiens. That's what is our technical name. Neanderthals are also Homo, part of Homo. This is, remember in high school biology, like kingdom, order, Phylum class, genus, species, all right. So this is the genus, and this is the species name. So uh, Neanderthals are in the same genus as we are. Their name is Neanderthalensis. That's their species name. So they, they are separate species from us. And now the question is, is were they an evolutionary predecessor to us? Did they lead to us? That chain has been broken now for about 10 or 15 years. It's fairly recent. One of the biggest um, contributing factors to breaking that chain were two things, actually. One is um, closer study of the differences in the anatomy of the bone structures, the differences between humans and Neanderthals were just started to be too great. But the nail in the coffin that they were different was the genome project, the human genome project in the early, two, early and mid-2000s. Once they started sequencing the human gen genome and then they were able to sequence the entire Neanderthal genome, there was like, th these are two completely separate species and one did not give rise to the other. Now, it's a large debate among anthropologists now is to what, from an evolutionary perspective, what came right before, what led to Homo sapiens sapiens? That's a big question in the academic world, is what came right before. It's not Neanderthals. Is that but, the missing link you're talking about? Yeah, the missing link traditionally 
has been Neanderthals, but that has been removed, but most lay people don't know that. I'm talking about like at the highest level of academia, people with PhDs and that's like their nerdville, okay? So, you know, everyone's, I have a theory that everyone's a nerd about something. If I were to talk to you, everyone in this room knows a lot about one topic, right? <laughs> so we're all nerds about something. So I'm talking about people that are nerds about cultural anthropology and, and uh, paleoanthropology. But we don't, right now, there is a lot of disruption among scholars as to what gave rise to Homo sapiens sapiens. It is not clear at all on the data as to what led to this from an evolutionary perspective. And so there is a growing, as he called it, a growing voice, a growing minority of scholars who are recognizing how truly different human beings really are. And we don't hear about this in the news because everything is sort of distilled down to like seventh grade science level in the news. And if you go in a middle school textbook, they still give you the traditional icon of this led to this, led to this, led to this. But if you saw earlier on the, the big map that I had up there and I had humans at the top and I circled it, one thing you might not have noticed is that there was all these broken, broken things leading to nowhere. There was this species, then this species, then this species, this species, this species, but they didn't interconnect. They didn't lead one to another. There is no picture among scientists of this led to this, led to this, led to this, led to this. There's no straight path for that. There's a lot of things living simultaneously in different parts of the world, but nothing seemed to lead to something else. And that is a big debate among scientists, okay? This is like the theologian is trying to um, be careful here, but... Because I work with, I've worked with these guys for almost 20 years, I'm pretty conversant on where we currently are. Yeah? Yes, what about Cro-Magnon? Yes, Cro-Magnon. Uh, Cro-Magnon is a, just a European human. He's a Homo sapiens sapien. He was an early find in the early 1900s, and in the beginning they thought maybe he was his own species, but as he's been studied more, he's really just been classified as a Homo sapiens sapien. He's a European human. So... Any other questions? Yes. So I think we're going to talk about that. There is a window where Neanderthals came first, and then humans came, and they overlapped a little bit. And then Neanderthals went extinct, and then humans continued. Okay? So, all right. Yes. Now, what's also interesting, too, is I'm sure people that are watching this would might have heard claims that Neanderthals made are that they sure. buried their dead, they made jewelry, you know, those they, they self-medicated. Um, well, those claims are out there. They're, they are part of the scientific literature, but they're also counterclaims. In other words, there are some anthropologists who, who dispute those, those conclusions. So there's a real debate going on. What were Neanderthals able to do? And this is where Tattersall's argument, again, is so important because Tattersall basically said, look, if Neanderthals were doing those things, that meant they would have possessed symbolism. But if they possess symbolism, then why is their technology so stagnant? Why doesn't it change over time why does, improve? We don't see the same trajectory of improvement yeah. like we've seen among human technology. Yeah, okay. and, so, and so in a sense, 
those claims are out there and people should realize that they're disputed. It's, a, it's an active debate. It's a real debate. You will find anthropologists that say, will say Neanderthals were very much like us. But again, there's others that would dispute it. But I think, to me, the, the, the Tattersall's argument it really seals the deal in favor of yeah. human exceptionalism. So let me ask you a quick question here to sort of clarify. We've been talking about humans, first humans, Neanderthals. Give me a little bit of a frame of reference of where you see those dates coming right. in at. Yeah, when it comes to the origin of humanity, I rely on the scientific data to tell me when humanity originates. And there's really three lines of evidence that we have. Uh, one line of evidence is the fossil record. And Unfortunately, the fossil record is extremely sparse when it comes to when first humans appear, but it's somewhere between 200 and about 100,000 years ago. Okay. That's about what the best we can do with the fossil record. So not millions of years ago, No. but maybe one to 200,000 years yes. ago. Yes. Okay. Now, the archaeological record shows that modern humans appear in terms of the behavior very close to, well, within that window of time again, okay. 100 to 200,000 years ago, probably about 130, 140,000 years ago. You can also date the origin of humanity using genetic variability of people around the world. It's called molecular clock analysis. And a number of markers place humanity's origin in that window as well. So I think that the best date for the origin of humanity is about 130 to 140,000 years ago, but the uncertainty is really rather large, uh, 30 to 40,000 years. And plus or minus. Plus or minus. Okay. So, so that's about when the date, scientific data says humanity originated. So when you say behavioral characteristics, that's what you're talking about previously, about the technology, the art. That's right. That sort of thing. Yes. That's what we're talking yeah. about. Okay, very good. So when we talk about Neanderthals, they came before humans. Yes. They coexisted with humans for some right. period of time. Can right. you give me kind of some rough dates for that? Yeah, look, Neanderthals probably appear between 200 and 250,000 years ago and probably are extinct by about 50 to 45,000 years ago. Okay. That seems, I mean, at the Emily, exact time window. Oh, that's fine. So you see how all of these are separate these are all separate species. Yeah, there's nothing linking them. I think this is actually like a pretty good diagram, even though it's, it's from a secular source. At least they were being honest in not drawing lines between these. Like this links to this. It's that these are all different species of what we call bipedal primates, primates that walk on two legs. And they were all different species, and they lived in different parts of the world. Some lived in Asia, some lived in Africa, some lived in Europe. But some of them lived at the same time as others. And these are the ones that are fairly well established. Um, the Floriensis lived in Indonesia, for example, and probably lived contemporaneous at the same time as humans. The question is, is were humans in that vicinity? Here's us, Homo sapiens sapiens, here's Neanderthals. But this, this just is kind of a, kind of a panoply of, of the major different kinds of bipedal primates and rough estimates of when they existed. And these are all very rough dates. So, okay, go ahead. Which means there would have been a period of time where humans and Neanderthals would have coexisted 
and, and so we would have overlapped with them and maybe even have encountered them you know, as we began to move around the world. So Neanderthals were primarily in Europe. Yes. And a little bit in Asia? Yes, in, in, in the Middle East as well. Mid Middle East, okay. Yeah. So humans come, the typical scenario is they come kind of from Northeast Africa yes. and then migrate into Asia and up yeah. into Europe. Yeah. And so that kind of gives us some understanding of geographically and some dates yeah. of where right. these things are. Right. So when we see these technologies arising, I know the cave paintings, for example, in Europe are about like yeah. 40,000 years yeah. ago-ish. Yes. Yep. Um, where do we see jewelry and right. you know other worship practices? Well, I mean, you know, it's very interesting because uh, there, there's a phenomenon called the sociocultural Big Bang uh, that people thought was primarily an event that happened in Europe, that when humans made their way into Europe, something triggered a change and suddenly humans began to display symbolism. Okay. And if that was the case, that would actually p displace the origin of humanity from the origin of, of sophisticated behavior, which creates all kinds of problems from a Christian worldview. Well, in the last few years, we've discovered that um, that there's cave art also in Asia that's 40,000 years old that is identical to Europe, which means that humans already had that understanding before we began to migrate around the world. And there's a growing number of archaeological sites in Africa that show an origin of humanity in terms of symbolic capabilities at a very close to the time we think humanity originated, biologically speaking. So those those dates are, are converging. Are converging. Okay, yeah. very good. All right, so let's just process this date information. So if you remember back a few weeks ago, what we said was, what was the main thing about human origins? It's that there was a historical Adam and Eve that humans are created in the image of God. Remember that? That was our main thing. But what we said was a secondary thing is the dates. You remember that? Our doctrinal statement at church doesn't say anything about the dates. So if we want to keep the main thing the main thing, so the dates that he's saying are still in conversation. Scientists are still making discoveries, but they do have multiple lines of evidence that are kind of all converging in this 100 to 150,000 years ago date for humanity. So the Neanderthals would, were back a little farther. Neanderthals are about like 200 to 250,000 years ago, whereas humans are about, the best dates are really at about 150,000 years ago for humans. So he would say humans were created intelligent from the beginning because they were created in the image of God from the beginning. That Adam and Eve were, you know, the first homo sapiens sapiens to put it in a scientific. What the Bible doesn't really tell us specifically is when. It just tells us that there was this first pair. So that was why the whole conversation a few weeks ago was so important of like, all right, what's the main thing? What's the thing that Christians have always agreed upon? And then what's the secondary thing that we can be curious about? We can have conversations about. The dating is a secondary thing. The main thing is the historical Adam and Eve and being created in the image of God. Does that conversation have more purpose now? Yeah. Yeah, I think that. Personally, I think that curiosity and discovery are very um, special features of what it means to be a human being, that God put us in us the ability to build on our knowledge over time and to increase in our technologies and to 
continue to build that out. Now, from a secular point of view, if you have someone in your Oikos who's you know, more from the emerging generation, it's not uncommon for them to say, well, ancient people, the reason they were able to learn so much so quickly is, well, maybe there was some, some intelligence from another planet that came and gave them technology. And that sounds silly to us, but that's a, that's a growing view among young people. And I actually think that that's an expression of a yearning that all humans have for the supernatural. That when, when young people make appeals to UFOs and, and other cultures, it's, a, it's really just an expression of their heart yearning for the supernatural, for something beyond this planet. And that's actually can be a, br a bridge to talk with them about that conversation. <coughs> and, and so from our standpoint, from a Christian worldview standpoint, God created us with intelligence. He created us with the ability to be curious and to discover and to develop new technologies over time. But there is definitely um, something that happens when he gets kicked out of the garden because God has set up a system in the beginning that's to Adam's advantage. And then I think that part of the narrative in Genesis 3 is when, when Adam and Eve get thrown out of the garden, it's sort of God's way of saying, all right, go make your own garden. You know, you got to figure this out. And that th then he's going to sweat, you know, by the sweat of his brow, he's going to have to, to, to work. It's going to be a lot harder. It's not that work was new. It's that the work became much harder. Yeah. Yeah, I think imagination is such a critical feature of what it means to be a human. I'm believing in that more and more as I get older. The imagination is part of the way that God has put in us to think about heaven and to think about heavenly places. And when we as westernized adults try to kill our imaginations, there's a sense in which we're killing our way of, of relating to the Lord. And that's part of what it means to be a human being, I think. It's a very unique feature of, of humanity. So we're going to watch a few more um, minutes here, and then we'll shut it down. For so time. when we think about the archaeological record, one of the key indicators I know um, is worship. Mm -hmm. I think that's something the class would probably be interested in knowing a little yeah. bit more about, is what is the evidence for early practices yeah. of worship? Because sin happened pretty quick. Yeah. People started worshiping other gods or creating their own gods. So what yeah. do we see in terms of worship? Well, the, the best indication we have of that would be the cave art. Okay. And, and the, the cave art, I mean, it's not just simply painting uh, what's primarily depicted are animals. It's not just simply depicting animals for the sake of depicting animals. There seems to have been a real religious significance to it. And there's a, an anthropologist by the name of David Lewis Clark who has, I think, a model that explains everything. And he basically argued that the humans that were making art had a, a complex view of reality, meaning they realized that the world was physical and spiritual. Mm -hmm. And that he thinks that the cave art was actually visions that sham, a shaman would have had uh, of... Uh, of course, taking hallucinogens of, of a spiritual realm. And the view was that the deeper into the earth you went, the closer you were to that spiritual realm. And so meant much of the cave art is actually very deep within the cave systems. Hmm. And these are massive, massive murals on the wall, cave walls. And uh, the thought was that the cave wall was the veil between 
the physical world that we live in in the spiritual world that the shaman was trying to access with the idea that if he could access that spiritual world, he could actually have the spirits influence the events in the physical world. Wow. And if you look at the cave paintings, many times you'll see these handprints. Well, the handprints were actually, people believe, paintings where, the, again, it was trying to reach beyond that veil. So in other words, he sees these, this cave art as deep, a deeply religious expression of a complex view of reality where we were, as human beings, trying to access that reality. Now, of course, this is obviously nothing like the Christian faith or, or monotheism, you know, but it's, it's showing uh, basically a deeply religious sensibility that these humans had. And, of course, if that cave art is also in Asia and functioning in that same way, it means that the first humans were probably deeper religious. And you could see this as a distortion of, of you know, a, 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 of a true religion, a sure. true monotheism, right? Interesting. Very interesting. Stop there for today. Okay. Since I think we're going to go in, I think this is where I shifted into a different conversation about the moral implications of all of this. So we'll talk about that next time. Um, so how would you characterize what the big idea was in that clip? What was Dr. Rana trying to argue? Yeah, that there was a sense of the supernatural in the earliest humans from as far back as we can go, that they had some sense that there was some other spirit world out there that they wanted to access. And this would make sense in light of Romans 1, which is probably a great place to land this conversation today is in Romans chapter 1 because I think that part of what it means to be human is to worship. That that's part of what God has put in all of us as human beings. We don't see animals that worship. Um, and that is a distinctive feature of humanity. But we don't always worship the correct God. Right? Because Christian worship, distinctly Christian worship isn't just that you're worshiping the correct God. You even have to worship the correct God correctly. And you have to worship him through Jesus, through the blood of the cross. Right? You can't get into the Holy of Holies just any old way. Right? There's only one way into the Holy of Holies, and that's through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So you can't, you can't just, it's not enough just to worship the correct God. You have to worship the correct God correctly. Under the Old Covenant, you also had to worship the correct God correctly in the correct location with the correct priest and the correct sacrifice. You couldn't start freestyling. Freestyling is what happened in the Northern Kingdom, right? Under Jeroboam, where he established alternative uh, seeker-friendly worship centers so that people didn't have to have the inconvenience of going down to Jerusalem. And he established alternative festivals and, and feast days and alternative sacrifices, yeah? And this is what made the northern kingdom repugnant to the Lord and why he never brought them back to him and they did not get restored to the land. So worshiping the correct God correctly is kind of a big deal in scripture. And we fall, at, the humans fall out of that rather quickly in Genesis. I mean, by the fourth chapter, we've got this whole Cain and Abel problem, right? By chapter six, God says the, the, the evil in people's hearts is always evil all the time. 
That's a fairly um, sweeping generalization, right? Well, why is that? I think it's because God has created us to worship. It says, and let's see. When we think about Romans chapter 1, verse 22, or is that 21? 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Images. Images. Other gods, other religious systems. They didn't stop worshiping. They kept worshiping. They just invented their own religion. Made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, they took things that they knew, that they were familiar with in the natural world, and they turned them into an alternative religion. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for what? A lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And so on. So do you notice how the invention of your own religion ultimately leads to the fruit of the invention of your own morality? That's, that's kind of the trajectory of how that goes. When you get your God wrong, when you stop worshiping the correct God correctly, the next step on that train is inventing your own morality, inventing your own moral system. What I want us to notice here, though, in next week we'll go into this in more detail, is the shift from what you believe about creation really matters because then it's going to have a bearing on your moral choices. So next week we're going to start talking about some of the moral choices that follow if you adopt an evolutionary paradigm about the origin of humanity. What are some of the moral implications of that? And what I want you to see scripturally here is from a biblical point of view, there's a direct connection between what you believe about the creator, what you worship, leads right into moral choices and moral implications. And this is where our young people are today. And I think if you want to know why there's so many mass shootings, there's some reasons for that. We got to be a little bit sober-minded to understand what the philosophical implications are of some things that we have told our young people about where they come from and who they are. So we'll leave it right there for now. I'll just put a little bookmark right there. So come back next week. We'll be in our normal location over there. Uh, and we'll go from there. Let's, let's um, close in prayer. Uh, Father, I just thank you for what you're teaching us. I thank you for my friend Fuzz for doing this video for us so that we can have these conversations and explore some ways that we can talk to unbelievers and young people in our oikos about, about creation and about where we came from and, and what your word says about the first humans. And we don't have to shy away from those conversations, but that we can be, we can be equipped and we can have information and we can learn how to ask better questions so that we're in, when we're in those critical conversations, uh, like Pastor John's been talking about, that we can, we can really try to lead people to a different way of thinking. 
In Jesus' mighty name, amen.